ภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมตัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมม
We might find this puzzling or strange, or we might find our mind wanting to work out the logic of how it all fits together. But instead of trying to figure it all out, just watch how it works. When the heart is established in that quality of the selfless, bright simplicity of knowing, notice how there is an absence of me in the world. There is seeing, hearing, feeling, remembering. But that flow of perception and feeling is not accompanied by the sense of I, or me, or mine, or or such like. There is the absence of the feeling of alienation that comes with that, as a naturalness, a simplicity and a beauty to each moment. Even if what is being perceived is not pleasant, or is very ordinary, the heart is still able to fully enjoy each moment because of the full attunement of the heart to its own nature. So similarly, in the, uh, I'm not sure if I quoted it last time, but the, the teaching of the Buddha to Bahia, who was a wanderer who had, um, he thought he was enlightened, but uh, it was revealed to him by a, a devata who came to visit that he wasn't enlightened and wasn't even on the way to being enlightened. And, um, and then he asked, well, are there any enlightened beings in the world? And this deva said, yes, actually, in the Savati you'll find uh, the Buddha Gotama. And uh, Bahia set off walking and walked several hundred miles uh, from where he was on the coast of India to Savati and met the Buddha in the street and then asking the Buddha for his teaching and not, only, not wanting to wait until they were back and could get back to the monastery and uh, encouraging the Buddha to speak then and there because of the, uh, the fragility, the, the uncertain nature of life. Then the Buddha gave this very simple teaching, very direct simple teaching about uh, perception and not self. He said, uh, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. If you, if it's recognized that in the scene there is only the scene and so forth, then it will be, it will be recognized that there is no thing here. There is no subject, no substantial separate experiencer or subject. And when it's recognized there's no thing here, it will also be seen that there's no thing there. No, uh, the object is, the world of the object is also empty. And uh, so when, uh, uh, and when there, it is recognized that there is no thing there, you will not be able to find yourself either in the world of this or in the world of that or any place between the two. This Bahia is the end of Dukkha. And Bahia became an Arahant right there and then in the street. Um, so from not being on the path to, to enlightenment uh, a few weeks before, he, uh, he realized the full enlightenment right there in the street on that very short teaching and he was uh, recognized as being the one who understood the teaching most quickly. And he was also right about uncertainty as he was knocked down by a runaway cow in the street and died in the Savati shortly uh, after he'd met the Buddha. So he was right. So it's one of those uh, famous incidents of the Pali Canon, uh, the Bahia Sutta. You find it in the Udana, the inspired utterances. There's no need to believe or disbelieve these words. Experiment. We can explore for ourselves. In our clearest moments, how is the experience of this being and the world? How is it? The inner world and the outer world, how does it feel? This third exit point from the cycle is thus re related to the third noble truth, Dukkha Nirodha, the cessation of suffering. Just as with the first two noble truths, the Buddha gave an instruction on how to work with this third noble truth, he named the task as, it is to be realized, appreciated, fully taken to heart, idang dukkaniroto aryasachan satchikatabanti. This means that the ending of dukkha is to be wholly appreciated, embodied, known as real. 
Otherwise, how could the heart fully imbibe that delightful truth that there is no dukkha? You might think that such an appreciation would go without saying, but the conditioning of the perceptual process tends to work against this. Say, for example, we're sitting and we hear a continuous sound, the sound of traffic or the humming of the fridge. When that sound stops, there are a few seconds of ah. As we realize that the unpleasant, quote-unquote, sound has stopped. In the same way, we only notice niroda, cessation of suffering, in contrast to the presence of some dukkha. After a few seconds of the absence of the, irritate, uh, of the irritating sound, it's become ordinary, and so the mind ignores that absence. After a few seconds of the absence of the irritating sound has become ordinary, sorry, <laughs> I'll read that a third time. After a few seconds, the absence of that irritating sound has become ordinary, and so the mind ignores that absence. Ignorance has literally been established once again. So does that make uh, make sense? Uh, the, uh, I think everyone's familiar with that the kind of uh, experience, with that, like a plane passing over, or the, the vehicles stop going past, or the, the fridge, the humming of the fridge stops, and you go, oh, I hadn't even noticed that was happening. But there's a conscious appreciation of that absence, and then after a few seconds, then that absence is not anything significant. It's it, there's no no message carried there, and so the perceptual process ignores it. No thing happening. The silence of the fridge is not something that catches our attention. You know, if you walk into a room and the fridge isn't humming, we don't think, "Oh, the fridge is quiet." Would imagine so that uh, uh, that. Um, uh, say that absence of dukkha, satchikartabanti, satcha means truth or, or reality, so satchikartabanti, it needs to be made real or it's, it needs to be um, fully uh, appreciated, fully, uh, uh, fully known. So, any questions, thoughts? Silence. Okay, we'll continue. So the next section is called Eating is More Interesting Than Peace. The challenge of the Third Noble Truth is to sustain that awareness of no dukkha. This is challenging because peace is not interesting. Silence is not interesting. Space is not interesting. It doesn't catch our attention because our senses are geared towards noticing what you can eat, what's going to eat you, what you need to protect and provide for, what to compete with and what is going to be valuable. The senses are for things that are going to be pleasant or painful, so that we have to train our senses to notice peace, to notice space, to notice silence, and to stay with it. This is what Satchikata Bhanti, the realization of Dukkha Nirodha, means. And on that there's a, a chapter in um, the, the book by Lupo Sumedha, Mindfulness, the Path to the Deathless, called Noticing Space. Probably quite a few of you are familiar with that. Um, also in his collected teachings, um, uh, noticing space, and he, he, go, he goes into that in quite some detail. As this, this was a very, very frequent theme of uh, Lumpur's teaching, and, um, uh, and because uh, uh, exactly what I was saying, it's, it's an element that is it's sort of glossed over. The attention goes to dukkha and the, the causes of dukkha, you know, suffering and craving. They're much more sort of vibrant and attention catching. And I think in this respect, it's it's helpful to consider our our kind of instinctual heritage, the sort of uh, evolutionary effects of the senses: seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Our 
Our senses are very, very ancient. They, you know, they literally, literally go back like hundreds of millions of years into the past. The, the capacity to hear or see or to sense environment, you know, even to microscopic creatures, all sort of monocellular uh, creatures, they know it's uh, it's attractive, it's edible, move towards it. It's dangerous, it's poisonous, move away from it. Um, so I think it's helpful to uh, understand and respect that our, the conditioning of the senses is extremely ancient, powerful, and and so in this effort to notice space or to to realize the inni of dukkha, to to be fully uh, appraised, uh, 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 acknowledging, realizing that it's it's a, it's work. <laughs> it's it's going against the the um, the the habits of literally you know, hundreds of millions of years. Uh, and that our inherited senses uh, and how they operate, how how they work, how they function, and the, the conditioning of them. So it's not impossible, of course, but it means that um, it's an effort that needs to be made to to bring about that that kind of recognition. In that in that respect, Lumpo Sumedha would often say, you know, "The third noble truth is the most difficult one to live with and, or to work with," and it's. It's a the uh, in a way it's the most important. It's the kind of it's the good news of the whole thing. It's the the, the kind of uh, uh, the end result of, of the effort of reflecting on the four noble truths and working with them is dukkha niroda, the ending of dukkha. He said many times, I, I teach one thing: suffering and the ending of suffering, dukkha and dukkha niroda. And so it's the point of the whole thing is dukkha niroda, but it's also the thing that's most easy to to miss. And so. Uh, Lumpo Sumedho often would give this particular noble truth more attention than, than, than the others. The instruction in the sutta is Dukkha Niroda should be realized. Those of you who have been students of Ajahn Sumedho, listened to his Dhamma talks, or read his books, will know that he puts a lot of attention onto this theme. He will often use a catchy phrase like, Peace is really boring. This is because silence, space, stillness, and peace are not exciting according to our normal habits of perception. But when we let go of those habitual ways of perceiving and open the heart to silence, space, peacefulness, stillness, the ending of dukkha, that initial impression of being uninteresting or boring falls away as a kind of blossoming. He would also uh, often illustrate this by saying, uh, using uh, examples like the, uh, if, you, if they published a, uh, a newspaper with a banner headline, uh, Ajahn's you know, Buddhist monk breathes in and breathes out. So you wouldn't sell many papers. Uh, and this was a frequent theme of his Dhamma talks. He wouldn't sell many newspapers. You know, banner headline, Buddhist monk breathes in and breathes out. Like, so, big deal. But he said, if it says, Buddhist monk runs away with a 16-year-old girl, oh, goodness, how terrible, how awful, you know, let me read it. And so that... Uh, that uh, you know, that which is kind of startling or shocking or frightening or irritating gets our attention. That which is ordinary um, slide, you know, slides past. It's like so a human being breathes. You know, it's not news. You know, why would I be interested? For example, let's say you are looking for someone. You look in the living room and it's empty. There's nobody there. Nothing interesting here. So you take off and search some other rooms. What if instead, as you come into the empty space of the living room, you stop and attune to that space, the stillness and silence? The heart opens to the presence of the moment. 
There's a recognition that the Dhamma is here and now. How could it not be? In that moment, if there's a real openness of heart, if there is a realization of the quality of stillness, silence, spaciousness, there is a profound richness and beauty in that absence. In the Thai language, the word for ordinary, tamada, is derived from the Pali word meaning uh, of the nature of ultimate reality, dhammata. Hidden in the ordinary is the ultimate. If you open up the packet, you find the great treasure inside. This is Dukkha Niroda, which is recognized by the awakened awareness of the heart. So that, uh, uh, and even written in the, 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 the spelling of the Thai word, the, the same letters as for the word Dhamma is in there, Tamada. So that it's, it's, the clue is not just in the sound, but also in the, it's in the, the, the way the word is written, Tamada. You forgive me for my bad pronunciation. Tamada, ordinary. So Dhammata, Dhammata, the Ta means of the nature, or the nature of. Dhammata means of the nature of Dhamma. Does that make sense? Any questions? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, about a billion years, I think. Oh, that's all. That's all part of it. I mean, it's uh, our past lives and also just the, the conditioning of the body, the whole, the whole thing. So it's like a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. Just like our bodies are a mixture of our ancestors, you know, our parents, grandparents, and and all the generations before. It's a our bodies are a, these bodies are a mixture of influences of everyone who's gone before us in terms of our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and, and so on. So that our um, uh, what influences the habits of the senses in this moment is uh, both having a human body and the conditioning of, of, of this life, but also what uh, conditioning there might be from, from previous lifetimes. So yeah, it's, a, it's a mixture of those influences. Well, it's uh, collective insofar as like like yeah, your your accent is influenced by having been born in Romania, right? So uh, your your language is spoken by lots and lots of people around you when you were growing up. So it's a kind of group, quote unquote, group karma or group influence because everyone's speaking the same language. 
so that that's yes you're influenced by that because there's other people around doing the same things um uh, you, you know just like the, like the the way that we're sitting we're in a buddhist monastery uh, we uh, we have customs of sitting on mats and cushions you know people are sitting on the mats and the cushions and or on the chairs you know you're not sitting on the carpet or 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 standing here looking over my shoulder the conventions of gathering together in a buddhist monastery it's like this this is kind of how we do things here it's a sort of group agreement or a group behavior so we're influenced by each other and what we've learned is um so sort of the way things are done or what is normal like speaking english or speaking speaking romanian or such like so we're influenced by the the um, the things around us and then of course from previous lifetimes and then the where we've been and what's happened in those lifetimes it'll it will uh, it will have had its influence too but um the uh, so, but the buddha pointed out you know, one of the imponderables the achinteya is all of the influences and workings of karma and its results it's one of the, the four imponderables the achinteya so figuring out all of the influences that make my experience of this moment exactly like this is like it's totally incalculable you can't you can't piece it all together No. Uh, no, but um, <laughs> the th- things have their influence, and so the way that the mind has related or reacted to those influences is part of, of the karmic complex. So you're not so sort of personally responsible. Like I didn't invent English language. I, I experienced the effects of this being the language that I grew up with and 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 that I speak and that I, I use. So not all of the things that influence our, our lives are, are the results of our personal action. Uh, there's the influence that there's the laws of physics and chemistry, the laws of biology, the, the kind of the, the society uh, that we're born into there's many, many influences. So the 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 results of personal choices is only one one element that goes that comes to to uh, make up what we're experiencing in this moment so, so i would say many of the things that we experience are not the results of personal choices they don't have to be no 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 Our, our inner suffering mm-hmm. it's our responsibility our karma is because of own action of own intention um, either to um, you know I'm not aware I'm not mindful and I react to something or dislike like ignorantly mm-hmm. 
So it's my own. Uh, um, it's because of me. So the, yeah, the the dukkha, the the kind of uh, the mental dukkha that comes from the experience of the present is to do with the mind's attachment to like and dislike and uh, the, the, the attitude that the mind has to what is seen, seen, smelt, tasted, touched, heard and so on. So that is the thing that drives me towards the object, towards the things I don't like or I like. So, yeah, is, uh, yeah, maybe that's also influenced by many other factors. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I don't know which one, but it's still always. Yeah, so we can't like that. I feel it's very helpful that the Buddha laid out that you know, the the workings of karma are achinteya; they're imponderable. Uh, but also in other teachings where he talks about um, what are they called the, the the niyamas, the laws of nature that. In this moment, what we experience uh, is the results of the laws of physics and chemistry, the laws of biology and evolution. Um, we experience the results of personal choices. So you have Utuniyama, Bijaniyama, uh, Kamaniyama is the third one. That's the only one that's related to our personal choices. Then Jittaniyama is the way that the mind works. And then Dhammaniyama is the fifth one. So in each moment, we all experience the effects of those laws, physics, chemistry, biology, evolution, uh, personal choice, the, the psychology, the way the mind works, and the ultimate nature of reality. All of that is it comes together to make up the experience of this moment. So, so it's, it's super, uh, <laughs> super achinteya, you know, maha achinteya, it's really imponderable. But we can know in this moment it feels like this, and in this moment the mind can not be creating dukkha out of the, um, what, we, what is seen, heard, smelt, tasted, touched, thought, wherever it's come from, whatever the sources are, the mind can uh, can know it and not create dukkha about it. That's that's the, the kind of the great insight of the Buddha when he re- and why he kept his teaching focused on the four noble truths, and he wouldn't talk about. What's the ultimate origin of things? Or, you know, the, the first, they said no first beginning is describable. So, and whereas many religious traditions and mythologies would, would talk about a first cause or how things began, the Buddha realized right from the get go, absolutely no point. <laughs> Any words you could use couldn't describe the reality and it's, no, it's not useful anyhow. It's just an idea. What's important is in this moment, du- you know, dukkha and ending dukkha, that's what matters. So he he saw that right from the beginning, and that was the focus of his teaching. So we don't need to be able to map where every single influence has come from to make up this moment. Why we we think you know, the way we do. I, mean, I find I repeat phrases that my father used, repeating his father. My grandfather died in 1930. I never met him, but I use his phrases. Because my dad used to use them, and so I've inherited little little phrases that my my grandfather used. Yeah, I was born in 1956. He died in 1930. <laughs> but I'm influenced by things that he used to say. So that's. Uh, but I don't have to make a problem out of that. <laughs> uh, 
but I can recognize, oh, there's an influence there. I, I hear myself using that phrase about looking after a, a fire, you know, a, 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 a wood fire. Um, and uh, that, I know where it's come from, but the mind doesn't have to make anything out of it. So we can extend that to all of the different things that, that come together to make up this life. That's why the Buddha over and over says, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. <laughs> you don't need to, to be able to write mathematical equations for how every single instrument in the orchestra functions. You can listen to the music of the orchestra and know, oh, in this moment, it sounds exactly like this. So, so that's an incredible uh, 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 insight and extraordinarily helpful because a lot of religious traditions spend huge amounts of time sort of trying to <laughs> sort of debate and decide things that are, that are really outside of the scope of direct knowledge. But the mind likes to theorize around them. And the Buddha saw it's not necessary. Just, <laughs> just focus on this one thing. This, the, the, uh, uh, the, it's a deliberate leaving aside all of the ex, uh, extra material and on the the central theme of, a, of an uh, incredibly vast subject. So that's what matters. Okay? I will continue. <laughs> I will continue. Why do we speak so much? Why do I speak so much? Why do we speak Why do you speak so much? Well, it's... Uh, might be my influence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of, of finding the um, the the um, the wonderful within the ordinary, there's a, a, an interesting story um, uh, from Thailand about. And maybe I told it last time, but it's uh, it's, a, it's a kind of, a, uh, sort of also the, the 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 mythology of the ugly duckling. You know, the the, the, the duckling that thought it was a really it was really ugly and was um, it was rejected, and then it uh, it uh, realized that it was actually it was a, it wasn't an ugly duckling; it was a swan. So when it grew up, it turned into a swan. So that uh, the the mistake of the ugly duckling was that it didn't realize that in its own nature was that swanhood. But in Thailand, there was a um, uh, in what Trimit, which means the three the three friends, was a monastery in Bangkok. Um, and uh, there was a, 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 a quite an old monastery, with, uh, and uh, there was areas, parts of the monastery that were quite run down um, and uh, needed fixing up. And there was one little shrine hall that was was quite neglected, and so the, um, the 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 sangha that was there at the time decided to to fix it up. And there was this large Buddha image inside this space, and so they thought, well, we'll get a get a crane and we'll lift the Buddha image up and. And taken out of the building, the, the roof is really sharp, and they've got to repair all the walls. And so, they well, just drop the crane in through the roof, pick the Buddha roof up, take it out, put it into the courtyard, and then we can get in and and fix the um, fix this the shrine hall. And then they they, they got the crane, uh, um, they, they put these slings around the Buddha image, and they tried to, to lift it up, and it broke the crane. The kind of the arm of the crane kind of crumpled. And they thought, wow, because it and they were surprised because it was a the, the the Buddha looked like it was made of, of clay and was painted. Uh, sort of this paint had also worn out that was going to be uh, restored. And they were surprised. And, the, and, the, and when the crane broke, the Buddha image dropped to the ground. There was a crack appeared in the in the clay. And then the abbot at the time, who was quite uh, observant, 
realized that under the clay there was this kind of black um sort of shiny material and he thought that's odd it's like it's like the kind of um some sort of tar based finish that uh, why would that be there why is that under the clay there's no reason why you'd, you'd have a clay buddha with that kind of strange black material so that he thought let's have a let's have a look and he got a you know a screwdriver or a knife and he started scratching away this sort of black uh, layer of, and he saw there was some there was some some cloth and some of this black pitch uh, and he sort of scratched away at it and lo and behold there was gold underneath and he thought oh interesting so they, they started chipping away the um, all of the clay around it and they found a solid gold image inside it weighed five tons of pure gold not, not absolutely pure but high grade so it was a five ton golden image and what they realized was that um, when the, uh, Thailand was being invaded and they thought, oh, they, they didn't want the invading army to, to, to steal this extremely valuable image. So they covered it up with clay, painted it, and, and, uh, and sort of uh, took away the decorations from around it. And, 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 and they managed to, um, uh, to, to, for it not to be recognized, and it was left alone. But then, uh, I guess because of the effects of the war and the struggles that went on, people forgot <laughs> that that was the... Um, uh, that was what was inside the uh, uh, inside the clay cover, the clay image, until this um, this happened. So now, at Wat Tri Mit, it's kind of <laughs> it's not in the middle, out in the in the side shrine hall, but it's you know, right in the middle of the main uh, the main shrine, high up in the monastery. So you can, if you go to Bangkok, you can go and visit it. But it's a very much an ugly duckling story within the the, the plain and unremarkable. It was this um, uh, solid gold five tons of gold image. So, to continue. Again, we don't need to believe or take, uh, believe this or take it on trust. We can experiment for ourselves. When there is a peaceful moment, everything is clear and simple. Selfless, beautiful. How long can the attention stay with that spaciousness, simplicity, silence? How long is it before the mind seeks another thing to have an opinion about? Similarly, when do we bring the uh, when we do bring attention to that quality of inner silence, spaciousness, simplicity? Notice what happens when the heart opens to peace and simplicity. Then the heart goes from being a, a blank space that quote hasn't got anything interesting in it to the richness of the presence of Dhamma itself. Notice that. Test it out. Then we can see for ourselves how it is. In contrast, notice how food, even for the most non-sensual, is interesting, exciting when we're hungry, or when the food is of, the, of just the sort we like. Eating is a very primal activity. It's closely tied to the qualities of tanha upadana bhava, the movement from craving to clinging to becoming. An exercise that we can use to explore this is eating just one mouthful at a time. We might think, that we do that already. By the way, I'm not spying on anyone or watching uh, our eating habits, just in case you're, ah, what's, what have I been doing? <laughs> He's been watching me. They got, there's no cameras on, on anybody. This is just how we tend to be as, as average human beings. We might think that we do that already, but most of us don't. While we have food in our mouth, our eye is scanning the plate or the bowl, and the hand is already making preparations to get the next mouth, mouthful lined up, 
like an aeroplane in a holding pattern. While one plane is landing, the next one is circling. Circling the airport, waiting to land. In addition, the eye is preparing for the next descent of the utensil to select the next mouthful after that one. So you've got some in your mouth, and then you're, you're reaching for the next with your, your spoon or your fork, whatever, and the eye is scanning other parts of the plate to see what comes after that. Can do. We can have three things on the go without realizing it. And we don't need to work to sustain attention on eating, for the most part. It attracts attention naturally. To, ca <laughs> to counteract this unconscious habit, when we take a mouthful of food, put the food in the mouth and then put the utensil down. We're simply paying attention to the act of eating what we're eating. What a radical concept! When that mouthful is finished and the food has been swallowed, then we pick up the utensils again for the next mouthful. So that uh, um, you don't have to eat in slow motion or you know chew each mouthful a hundred times or anything of that nature. But if you just make that a, a practice, which I, I try to do, uh, you uh, if you put the you put in a, a, mouth, a spoonful of food or a forkful of food into your mouth and then put the spoon down and then just eat what you're eating. And also, you don't have to look at the, <laughs> at the bowl or the plate. Just eat what you're eating, pay attention to that, and then when you finish that mouthful, then pick up the spoon again. It, it's astonishing how it changes uh, the, the eating experience. So I thought I would read a, a passage that talks about this kind of thing. Um, this is the Brahmayu Sutta, Sutta number 91, in the... Uh, Majjhima Manikaya, the Middle Length Discourses. And this is a particularly, a really interesting sutta because it's Brahm, Ayu means uh, lifespan uh, or long life. And this is a, a story of a, an elderly Brahmin, a yogi meditator, uh, who, was, uh, who had heard about the Buddha and he, uh, he was quite old and, and, um, and not easy for him to travel. So he asked for the student to go and spend time with the Buddha and say, well, okay, this, this monk Gotama is supposed to be in line. They talk very highly about him. So um, can you go and, and visit him and spend time there and let me know? Is he the real deal? Is, he, is it true what they say about him? And so the sutta is that the description that when that, that uh, disciple of, the, of Brahmayu uh, went to go and stay with the Buddha, and so he's he kind, of, kind of spying, kind of researching, <laughs> but you know, with good intention. Uh, it's not malicious, but he, his job is to sort of go there and to see how he does things. And so it's, it's uh, one of the, 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 um, the main parts of the, the Sutta Pitaka where you have these sort of everyday descriptions of how the Buddha operated and his routines and, and how he lived. So one of the things is how he eats. And so this is um, from the Brahmayu Sutta. When he receives rice, he does not raise or lower the bowl or tip it forwards or backwards. He receives neither too little rice nor too much rice. He adds sauces in the right proportion. He does not exceed the right amount of sauce in the mouthful. He turns the mouthful over two or three times in his mouth and then swallows it, with no rice kernel entering his body unchewed, and no rice kernel remains in his mouth. Then he takes another mouthful. So he takes a mouthful of food and he eats it, um, and so uh, that all the, the food that goes into his mouth, he chews it. So it's not like, wow, this is amazing, this is incredible. 
So it just goes down <laughs> unchewed, or you're in the middle of talking to other people and, and uh, while you're while you're eating, and the the, the food sort of goes uh, goes down without being properly chewed. If it goes in his mouth, he chews everything. Whenever the, and then he chews until everything is is has gone from his mouth. There's no rice or anything else left in his mouth. He swallows it, and then when it's swallowed, then he goes. Uh, uh, for the takes up the next mouthful, he takes his food, experiencing the taste, though not experiencing greed for the taste. The food he takes has eight factors. It is neither for amusement nor for intoxication nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness, but only for the endurance and continuance of his body, for the ending of discomfort, and for assisting the holy life. He considers thus: I shall terminate old feelings of hunger and weakness without arousing new feelings of being uh, overfull or getting indigestion. And I shall be healthy and blameless and shall live in comfort. So that's uh, Sutta number 91, if you want to follow up more of that. Any questions on that? I don't want to intimidate people. It is a, it's a really interesting exercise to, to do. I mean, you... You, uh, if just taking on something as simple as that, you begin to notice the the, the habits that, that you have with uh, with regards to eating. If it's a um, kind of compulsive or habitual, or or you have other sort of um, ways that uh, you uh, you relate to food, just to simply pay attention to the mouthful of food that you're eating while you're eating it. I make no predictions, but often the experience is: Wow, this food is really something special. Even a mouthful of plain lettuce can it taste extraordinary. Why did no one ever tell me that lettuce tasted like this? I never realized. This is a very helpful way of recognizing tanha upadana bhava, craving, clinging, becoming, that outflowing process. By putting down the utensil, we're helping ourselves to witness that urge. Instead of following it, we're simply keeping the mind with the experience of feeling and perceptions. In the moments when the mind is clear, the sense of me and the world is not solid. When vijja is established, then sankara doesn't arise. So you have avijja pachaya sankara, the ignorance conditions formations. So avijja is the opposite of, of vijja, uh, not knowing. When knowing is there and uh, not knowing is not there, then sankara, that basic sort of divisive subject-object uh, duality doesn't doesn't come into being. When vijja is established, then sankara does not arise. It is held in check. So too, all the other ten links of the chain. If you start off with vijja, the result is no dukkha. This is paticca nirodha, dependent cessation. There's also part of the the subtitle of the book, the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination cessation. As the attention drifts, as the mind becomes unmindful, the subject-object division seems to take on a reality and the paticca samuppada, the condition, uh, dependent origination, the conditioned uh, creation, that process kicks into action once again. It's most important to get a sense of how that works on our own experiential level. The dependent origination teaching is like a precise map. The most important thing is embodying and understanding the experience. So like a map, you know, it's, it's useful insofar as it helps us to get where we need to go. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's not a matter of just understanding the map or being able to read the map. The point is to 
to bring about that change of of, uh, of location to to uh, to facilitate that uh, the, a different attitude. So the third exit point from the Bhavachaka, the wheel of becoming, is the establishment of vijja, the awake, unobstructed heart. If that quality of awakened awareness is strong enough, the cycle is not allowed to begin at all. If that attribute is well established, ignorance can't take root and the whole cycle of addiction can't get activated. If the heart is fully awakened and aware, then dukkha is not allowed to arise and there's a realization that there is no dukkha. It's like the image of the Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree when Mara's army was attacking him. Or their spears turn into beams of light and their arrows transform into flowers, raining to the ground. In this way, that image of the Buddha's enlightenment is symbolic for all of us. When the mind is fully awake and aware, the pains in our body or the struggles in our family or the tangles of our world are still there and we are sensitive to them, but the mind does not create suffering around them. It doesn't complicate or create conceptual proliferation, papancha. So when we say uh, there is no dukkha, it doesn't mean to say there's, uh, there's no physical pain or uh, all of the arguments in your family are magically resolved. Uh, that, that's not what we mean. As I uh, was mentioning, the, the dukkha of dukkha niroda is all about the second arrow. It's not about never having physical discomfort or never being hungry or everybody liking you all the time, uh, never feeling uh, any kind of, of experiencing any sort of you know, illness or or uh, or uh, say uh, mental um, uh, painful activity, like a, a feeling of sadness when you know, somebody dies or there's a a crisis in the world like right now with with, with uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, that that sadness can be there, that kind of physical pain can be there, but the mind doesn't have to add anything to it. You're not suppressing it. You're, the mind is fully knowing it, appreciating it, but it's not creating complication around that. So uh, those of you who might remember from the earlier readings, or uh, if you were here before, so the first exit point was dukkha itself. That was, uh, and that's related to the first noble truth. So the mind can, when dukkha has arisen, that kind of anguish or, or, or difficulty, that conflict is there. Then that first exit point is recognizing, you know, this is this is painful, this is awful, this is difficult, but this can't be the whole story. There has to be a way out. So that. Uh, the first exit point is related to how the mind relates to that uh, that uh, first noble truth, the, the, that anguish of, of uh, suffering and, and distress. Uh, the second uh, second exit point is related to craving. Uh, that the second noble truth, the cause of, of suffering, is is tanha craving, um, and that, that the exit point is uh, the the bridge between feeling and craving, and training the, the mind to to not cross that bridge. So this third exit point, so the first exit point is sort of link number 12, <laughs> you know, the, the 12th in the, the 12 links. The, uh, the second exit point is sort of links 7 and 8 on these handy diagrams that we've got here. So that the link between links 7 and 8 is the um, uh, Vedana Tanha uh, bridge. That, uh, uh, that's the second exit point. Then the, the third exit point is sort of back kind of at point zero, you know, back to before link number one has begun. So if link, link number one is is ignorance, avijja, then the third exit point is is at point zero before the uh, link number one ha, has started. Uh, so that 
uh, in this this particular model. And again, uh, for those, uh, if you might remember, I said before, or, or um, uh, uh, those of you who are new to these these readings, this kind of interpretational way of talking about it, uh, th this is just me speaking. <laughs> this isn't some kind of canonical or, or traditional um, sort of standard way of explaining it. It's just uh, my own. Uh, Way of putting things together and, and describing it, um, and so it just you know, it seems to work in uh, in this way. So you, uh, uh, you know, we could have created a, a bit of a different description, but this seems to fit fit together very neatly, both from um, the you know, that if we are refining the practice, you know, we start off with that feeling of dukkha, and that's that's where we begin, and then considering the cause of that dukkha, and then. Also, going back even further, when there's mindfulness and awareness is, is, is established, so it uh, it seems to fit together very well. But uh, again, this is just uh, the Amara ex explanations. This is not some sort of classical standard formulation. So, any questions, thoughts? Um, I have a question, which is actually very related to the books. Thoughts about its uh, uh, multiple influences or forces from previous lives or even karma. Because as I said, it's our life is very much of a fixed script. Uh, life is what? Uh, fixed script or script? Script. script. Uh, you might say that, or you might not. <laughs> I would say it is, it is already not a fixed script, personally. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, when I did a psychology degree, one of the most influential things was in the third, third year of the studies, we, did a, we looked at a book by a man called Claude Steiner called Scripts People Live. It's so related to another book called Games People Play. So Scripts People Live. And um, so I was in my third year, um, coming up to my final exams and wondering what I was going to do with myself and, and uh, my future, my life. And, uh, and uh, I had um, you know, a lot of different possibilities, a lot of things I was interested in or thought I might do. Uh, but also a lot of expectations. I was always surrounded, seemingly, by expectations. People having ideas about what I should be doing, what would be good for me to do. And uh, anyway, so there was this, okay, third year, finals coming up, what am I going to do after my finals? Um, and what sort of career, what kind of life do I want to go into? And uh, in that book, Scripts People Live, there's a... Uh, uh, an, it was I was really impressed with, with it, because there was some of the descriptions that, that he had, uh, Claude Steiner in that book was kind of, it was like eerily accurate, like has he, has he been sort of following me around? Or, you know, the, the, how did he know that? Uh, how is that so, just the, you know, the dynamics of the education system or the family or Western society, it's like, wow, he's absolutely on the mark, that's exactly how it works. So I was quite impressed with how sort of astute uh, and accurate his reading of, of our life situations and how we make decisions and so on. And so, uh, 
and it's all about scripts, the scripts that we follow, and how we can feel as though uh, we're obligated to follow a particular script, or a script's been handed to us by our family, or by the society, or um, different things. And he, he outlines a, a number, I mean 12 or 15 different things you can do with your script. And uh, so I was impressed by this book because there was t- two of the things um, that uh, most struck me was you can tear up your script or, or f- quote-unquote flip out of your script. Um, and so it was, it was helpful because there I was, you know, 20 years old and wondering what I was going to do with my life. And yes, there were all sorts of possibilities and people's expectations and bright ideas uh, around me. And... Um, and uh, the sense of I'm, you know, I'm being handed this this script, or I, I feel I've got to follow this this prescribed model, um, and uh, and this this book and the particular insights this fellow presented was like, no, you don't. You can flip out of your script. It's like, yes, it's a script, but you don't have to follow it. Who says you have to? Or you can tear up the script, flip out of it, and so that. Uh, you know, it was just a book, and it was just you know some psychology lectures. But something went yes, <laughs> and uh, that's that's possible. Uh, I uh, uh, I do love my family, and I do recognise my I have inherited a lot of of, great, of blessings, and there's many potentialities. But w- why do I feel I have to follow a script that's handed to me? Aha! Uh-huh. So there was this. It had a, a strangely strong effect. You know, it was just a book. You know, and we were studying it in this class, and but it it was, <laughs> and because it, it revealed that sense of I, my script is fixed. I've got to do this. I should. People expect. Or what will they think if I don't? And I kept noticing, who is this they that I'm trying to please? You know, who are they? <laughs> Where are they? What? Why should that be the defining factor? You know. And it just it hit something very sort of strong and, and intuitive in me. And so, uh, as it turned out, the the one thing that everybody um, seemed to be okay with, any possibility that I came up with, or what I talked about, some people liked and some people didn't like. And uh, uh, and anyhow, cut a long story short, the one thing that everyone seemed to be happy with was if I said, I'm going to go and travel around the world for a few years and see what happens. They're like, oh, good idea! Yeah, good idea! So, just kind of on the basis of just not trying to avoid the grief of trying explaining that I had the idea of being a dustman in Brighton. I wanted to, to be a garbage collector. I thought it was a very nice, humble life to have. And they say the Brighton dump was famous for having all kinds of interesting things you can find there. <laughs> I ran that past my dad, and he was very unimpressed with my idea of me being a, a dustman in Brighton. I thought it was quite a good idea. I had the idea of being a wandering storyteller. I thought I'd make a I'd build a canoe and then just sort of live, <laughs> in a, uh, have a canoe and paddle around the waterways and canals of, of England, be like a, a wandering storyteller and just live on uh, the, the 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 random offerings of people as I sit around campfires and visit pubs and tell tales. So I kind of ended up doing that. I didn't have the canoe. Or the, <laughs> but, uh, I haven't got the canoe, but I'm not making any hints, by the way. But, uh, uh, all kinds of things. I thought of being an actor, and um, I had uh, also my godfather was a partner of De Beers Diamond Corporation. So I had an opening at De Beers Diamonds that I could have walked into. Um, all sorts of things. But then it was people were happy with the idea of me going traveling, so okay, I'll do that. And so four months after I, I left on my travels, I wandered into Wat Pananachat. 
So that didn't take very long. <laughs> but that uh, that having that imagery of being able to just flip out of the script, just leave the script behind and walk away from it, or just tear up the script, and that was a that was a very helpful image because it, it also it revealed as I was reading that book and had that sense of why oh, this this guy really <laughs> knows how this the, the the mind works and how we we follow these these patterns that are are given to us, um, or that we, we assume are true and have to be followed. And uh, so I felt this person understands how it works, and then those possibilities that you can just leave that script behind. So that was when I, when I arrived at the, the, the monastery in, in northeast Thailand, Wat Pananachak, and, uh, and I, this tremendous faith and interest you know, immediately arose, like within days, two or three days, like, it was like, yes, this is exactly what I'd be looking for. Then the thought crossed my mind a couple of weeks later, there is no way that my parents are ever, ever, ever going to understand this. This is, um, this is really out of my script. <laughs> this never even crossed my mind, let alone their mind, this kind of thing. Um, you know, joining an, like a, 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 an orthodox monastic order off of the other side of the world in a religion I'd never even been interested in, knew anything about. But then, um, just on that note, what, what happened was I, was, I was sweeping the path in front of my kuti one afternoon and a thought crossed my mind that there's absolutely no way that my parents, you know, very, very middle of the road, average English, class, uh, English middle class people, how they would ever uh, understand this or tolerate it or, or, or be able to, to live with this, you know, their son becoming, their only son becoming a, a Buddhist monk. Um, at the age of 21. And, uh, uh, and the thought crossed my mind, maybe I should you know, go back to England and you know, get, a, get a straight job and marry a nice girl and have curly-haired children who have lovely table manners, you know, <laughs> run, around in the, run around in the garden and win, you know, win prizes at school, and that'll make them happy. It was, like, it was kind of all there in a, in a moment, like a second. It was just, maybe I should just do that. And then so in the same second, it was like this very powerful intuitive sense of like, no, no, it wouldn't be kind to you and it wouldn't be kind to, to them or the people that you ended up living with or being parent of because you would just be doing that uh, for the sake of fulfilling somebody else's script. I don't know, I didn't think of it in exactly those words. It was just, it was a kind of wordless recognition. Um, and so, uh, but no, the, the just the kindest thing you can do is to to uh, follow this motivation of being here, and then sooner or later they'll either understand or not. But you won't be performing some, you won't be living according to a lie. You won't be performing some sense of actions that your heart really isn't in. And it was it was very, it was strange. It was like it was just there in a in a second. Whole, uh, the whole thing um, it was very 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 quick. And uh, so then I started to think, okay, how am I going to tell them? <laughs> so that was tricky. But uh, uh, I would uh, recommend, just going back to your question, that sense of, of fixity of the script. Okay, this is the feeling of it's, it's fixed. Is that so? Who says? Who are they that uh, uh, will be upset or distressed or who... who uh, who are expecting this you know, this particular script to be followed? Um, why should it be followed? Yeah, uh, and just 
maybe there's some immediate answers like mum and dad you know? <laughs> or uh, but then it comes up and says well you know who are they really yes they are our parents but you know uh, uh, not out of disrespect or out of uh, love or care but um, because it was it, again not, not to sort of dwell on my own story but it was yes that's the expectation of my parents but e- even they didn't fulfill the expectations of their parents so why you know why and then my grandfather and grandmother they didn't do that either like my father's father he uh, he came out of the, the of a, they had a building firm Ashby and Horner in, in London and my grandfather flipped out of the whole thing and went off and trained as, to be a doctor in Aberdeen, I think. He went to the furthest end of Britain he could go <laughs> to, to, to get out of the family business and become a doctor. And then my grandmother, uh, it's kind of uncertain where, where she came from, but they got married in Brighton, where none of the family lived. So he was a trainee of the doctor in Aberdeen, and then she's, where did she come from? And they got married in Brighton, where they, where they weren't living, and nobody knew them there, so okay, it sounds like granddad and grandma were kind of moving out of the <laughs> the, the field so so sometimes that sense of obligation I'm not trying to disrupt your family but sometimes that sense of oh, um, meeting people, particular people's expectations is so well, what makes that so solid or so real? What makes that so absolute? And to you know, you trust that you care, that you love, you love various people, or you, or you have respect for society's values. But just to take that question, well, who says this is this is absolutely important? Who says this has got some kind of substantial reality? These are just human agreements, you know, expectations, mind states. There's no thing solid there, really. And it's not an idea that we're convincing ourselves of, but you're you're, you're in this process of reflection and exploring and challenging those assumptions you're drawing upon that intuitive sense, that which knows these are just agreements, they're just ideas, it's just habit that uh, there's there's no thing really there and then when we come from that place and then it makes, even though you have to phrase things carefully, like how can I tell <laughs> how can I break this to mum and dad that uh, that uh, you, because you're coming from that 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 reliable and intuitive place of, of wisdom and attunement, then you, the the heart finds a way through it. So yeah, it took about fifteen years for my family to get around to it, but eventually. So I hope that, uh, but I recommend uh, we might have a copy of that in the library. Claude Steiner, Scripts People Live. So I will leave it there, uh, uh, on the brink of Papuncha, for today. Annamayang dhamma uvarakataya sadhukarangadamase Sadhu, sadhu